Morning Reach Church. Morning. All right, if kids want to head to Reach Kids, they can do that. Grace and grace alone. That's good stuff. All right. Uh, so we are continuing in our series uh, talking about the life of David, the strengths that he showed, uh, and ultimately the strengths that are, that are open to us in Christ and through Christ. Now, this last week uh, was, was heavy, and this week, this week is going to be a little bit heavier, too, because we're dealing with the reality of David's sin. That's David's uh, great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, adultery and murder. Now, remarkably, uh, we've seen abundance of grace poured out onto, onto David as he repents, not because of any loss of, of blessing, but because he has uh, he's betrayed his, his Lord, his love, this God that, that he delights in. And we saw his great repentance, but in spite of all of that, in spite of the, the forgiveness and the repentance, we saw this remaining uh, discipline of the Lord. Now, we didn't talk about it last week. I promised I'd talk about it this week, so here we are. Uh, can't get out of it. Um, we saw three things that, that would be disciplines that would come upon David to help him understand the reality of his sin. That the sword, the sword would never leave his house. That as long as he lived, the sword would be upon him, and um, that he would, he would deal with that reality. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. That that adultery would come upon, uh, could come between him and his wives. This devastating uh, consequence. And then finally, we saw the reality that this child of David and Bathsheba, this child would die as a discipline of the Lord to help him understand the reality of his sin. And we ask ourselves, okay, uh, how do we understand the discipline of the Lord? How do we understand it in light of the forgiveness that we've been given in Jesus Christ? But how do we interact with God in the midst of discipline? How are we supposed to receive these things from his hand? And the remarkable thing we're going to see is that in the midst of discipline, in the midst of uh, this promise of discipline, David, in spite of everything, he is, he is seeking the Lord, the Lord of grace. He is seeking grace from the Lord even as he is being disciplined. And remarkably, he gets more grace than he ever bargained for. He is not given the grace that he was looking for. He was given even greater grace in Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's see how we can uh, learn about these things, how we can see Jesus even in the midst of discipline and, um, and sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for David once again that a man after God's own heart can show us um, what it looks like to interact with these things. Father, we ask that we would ultimately see Jesus, that we'd see the salvation that is by grace and grace alone, that we would know where we stand with you and that that would be an, an unshakable foundation, that no suffering or discipline would make us question our standing with you in Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that in the midst of discipline and suffering and sorrow, we would see the cross of Jesus Christ and we'd still know you as the God of abundant grace who gives us grace that we cannot even fathom. So Father, would you, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to, to those here who are in the midst of, of suffering or discipline? Would you give them the great comfort of Jesus Christ? 
And Father, would we worship in all situations, in all times and places, for the glory of your, your name in Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So we'll start by looking at the, the discipline itself from last week. Uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 through 15. David said to Nathan, David said to Nathan after he has been rebuked, I have sinned against the Lord. This, this beautiful picture of repentance that is against the Lord and the Lord alone that he has sinned. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because, of the, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. All right. Now, this is, an, uh, this is a difficult passage, and it's difficult because we can import ourselves into this situation, and actually, if we do so in the wrong way, we'll end up actually hurting, hurting the way that we interact with God and misunderstanding how we're supposed to receive passages like this, how we're supposed to understand the discipline of the Lord. Now, first, I want to remind us that David is not under the punishment of God here. This is not a punishment because... Uh, Forgiveness hasn't really been offered, yet, the, that it's a, it's a partial forgiveness, a partial freedom from sin. That's not what's happening. What, is, what does he say here? The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. That is, that is the forgiveness that is uh, the result of grace. That the punishment of sin is death. The punishment of sin is death. That, that would be the destruction of David. That has been removed. That has been completely removed. His sin has been put away. There's no residual effects of it. It's not that it was, it was taken away a certain percentage of it, and the rest of it you need to kind of burn off or, or work off or suffer off. No, the punishment is gone. What is left now is discipline. Is discipline. And we want to make sure there's a, there's a, a firm wall between those two things Punishment and discipline, so we do not confuse the two. Punishment is for sin. Discipline is for maturity. Punishment. Punishment is for those that God hates. And against the sins that God hates, discipline, discipline is for those that God loves. And for the maturity that God loves. Punishment is, is destructive. It destroys and it attacks versus discipline. Discipline is constructive. It builds up and grows and matures. And ultimately, punishment is for enemies. Punishment is for enemies. Discipline is for children. Discipline is for children. And so what is happening here to David, it is not punishment, it's not further punishment, it's not proof that he hasn't really been forgiven. No, it's actually proof that God loves David and that he has received David's forgiveness. He's, he's offered that forgiveness, he's received the repentance, and now he's going to go about loving his son in the best way that he can. Now, just so for, the, for the parents among us, this is one, one more reminder that this thing, discipline, it's a beautiful thing. 
And for those parents who, who cannot or will not or do not discipline, it's a, it's a, it's a failure to, to, in that aspect, to love our children well. Now, just so we're clear what that discipline looks like, uh, discipline starts with just displeasure and, and hatred of sin in those that we love. Then to, to help kind of show the, the immature, how, how evil that sin really is, it usually comes with something physical, some, some manifestation of those things. That Remy doesn't really care if I'm mad that he hit me with a Lego, uh, but if he goes to timeout, he, it, it helps him, helps him draw the connections just a little bit. Uh, but why, why do we do that? We do that to, to free our children from, from sin, that they might see what is so destructive and, and terrible in it, and find freedom from sin in Christ. They might hate their sin and love Jesus and, and be moving through that process. Now, that's what discipline is supposed to be doing in us. That's why God gives discipline as an act of love. That we might see sin and hate it and remove ourselves from the thing that is destroying us. not God destroying us. It's showing us the sin that is destroying us and loving us through it. Now, a caveat here. Uh, not all discipline is a direct response to sin. In this case, it is that God is, God is responding to David's specific sin and giving him this specific discipline. Now, that's not always the case. And I don't want you to think that, oh, if, if God is putting any suffering in my life or any discipline in my life, then it must be that I have some sin that I need to find. And I'll sin hunt until I find that thing that God, God hates in my life. All right, that would be an unhealthy way of receiving this passage. Because God doesn't just want to eliminate the sins in our life. God wants to bring us to true maturity in Jesus Christ. That he sees us as, as masterpieces. And as he works on us through suffering, he, he molds us and shapes us and conforms us to the image of Jesus. Not just responding to sin, but seeing our, our immaturity and, and disciplining us through, through immaturity even, not just blatant sin. Now that, that's just true for, for parenting as well. Parents are not just supposed to find the sins and eliminate them. No, what are they called to do? They're called to, to raise up men and women who, who love God and love people and, and enjoy worshiping Jesus. And so you're not just finding the sins and disciplining them. You're, you're shaping this person to, to be mature and to be adults. That's where it could be as simple as just saying like, hey, you... You just aren't seeing people. You're not considerate. And so you need to like look and look and see what are the needs of people around you. You'd be hard-pressed to, to identify a sin, but it's, it's helping them grow in, in loving people in the name of Jesus. All right, maybe it's as simple as, hey, uh, now, that you're, now that you're 13, you're starting to smell bad. <laughs> and it, it's now the time of deodorant has come upon us. And you haven't sinned, but parenting, like, help your kids mature in that sense. All right. Yes, right? <laughs> uh, that's just part of it. And that's where 
God, God has similar visions for us not to be smelly and immature. Um, and he's working in us, and he's using all things to, to bring those things about. Uh, please do not think that every suffering is response to sin. Now, most of all, most of all, um, for those of you who directly identify with this passage, who have lost a, a child, who have wrestled, just as, as David wrestled here, please do not put your, yourself in the place of David. The only reason that we say that there's any connection between this child's illness and David's sin is because God himself tells us in Scripture expressly, I would not say to anyone that the, the sickness or death of the child is because God's, God's discipline is upon you or because you sinned. That is, a, that is a destructive, evil message that we are not going to spread. All right? That is not the priority of Scripture. And David, David is special. We've said that again and again and again. David is special. And God's interaction with him in this way is special, and I think, a picture of the redemption that God is working in a special way because David is the king. So please keep that in mind. And please keep that in mind as you interact with those who are suffering, that you are not sin hunters in their lives, that you are not uh, condemning when you ought to be supporting those who are suffering and under the discipline of the Lord. Now, how does David deal with all this? How does he deal with the fact that he is under discipline and he he's experienced this discipline, experiencing this discipline so that he might understand how evil his sin really is? Uh, starting with this verse 15. What does David do? The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he went out to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but when the child has died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This is David's response to the discipline of the Lord. And at first, reading it, uh, I found it incredibly heartless. 
And you say, like, why? And the, and the servants receive it the same way. They see him lying on the ground. They see him fasting and refusing to be comforted or lifted up. But then the child dies, and, and suddenly it seems like there's, there's no care on his shoulders anymore, and he goes about his business. And the servants see this, and they, they expected him to be mourning one way, and then mourn more, but instead it, it totally reverses. And the thing is, David is not mourning in this passage. This is not a passage about how to mourn. This is a passage about how to seek the Lord, how to seek the Lord in the midst of discipline. And it's, it's totally reversed then. And what David is doing, David is, just like the Lord told him, he was, the, the purpose of his child falling ill was that he might know that he has utterly scorned the Lord. And so what does he do? He, he presses into his own heart the evil of his sin in every way that he possibly can. And physically, he tries to push that into him that he might know his sin and come to the Lord and, and feel his sin before the Lord, lay it at his feet and beg that the Lord might have mercy and grace for his son. And so he lies on the ground. He doesn't eat. He, he doesn't change his clothes so that he might become this like embodiment of, of repentance and, and hatred of sin that his dis discomfort and his hunger and his stench might be a reminder to him of, of where he stands before the Lord so that he might understand his sin and prove to the Lord that he doesn't need this discipline. He sees his sin. Be gracious to his son. Now, in all of this, in all of this, I think we realize that we don't fully understand how we're supposed to interact with our God. That we're all uh, men, eh, some of us, some of you are our sovereignty of God, uh, lovers and upholders, and what we would say is, no, the Lord has decreed, the Lord has spoken his will, and if God ever spoke to me and told me what he was going to do, I would be called to submit and to only submit, and to keep a stiff upper lip and be quiet about it, because that's what the Lord has decreed. That is the complete opposite of how David responds to the situation. That the Lord says exactly what he's going to do. And what does David do? David does everything in his power to change it. That's why we have to recognize that we don't just have this sovereign Lord on high. We have a father who loves us and who cares about us. And who hears us and sees us. And interacts with us personally. So that as we stand before the Lord, like he, we stand before one who might change his mind and pour out grace that would not otherwise have done so. That's the reality of, of our real personal relationship with God. And when we experience the, the discipline and suffering that we, we know is his will, even then we, we are called to cry out. And to seek his mercy. To push the sin into our heart that we might be free from the discipline without. That we would cry out to him. We are not just submitting to the fatalism of God. 
we are children responding to our Father and, and crying out to Him. Now, if we think that's wrong, then, uh, then we haven't understood Jesus either. All right, think of the Garden of Gethsemane. What is Jesus doing? All right, he's calling out to, to God that take this cup from me, let it pass by. Right, do we realize what he's saying there? This is the thing that has been planned for all eternity. From the beginning of creation, this is what the plan was. This is the only way of saving humanity. This is the only way of God uh, achieving the glorious plan that he has set up for in everything. Every single picture of the Bible is a picture of this. And what does Jesus do? Even then, he goes and stands before the, the Lord and says, you know what, if there's any other way, and he weeps and he cries and he sweats blood, asking for his father to, to do it some other way. Right. Please don't be passive or resigned in your relationship with God. We're not stoics. We're not apathetic. We're not just opening ourselves to whatever God has in store. No, we're, we're interacting with our Father and asking that, it, that the things of our hearts are done. Now, the, the hard thing about all this is, what is God's response? God's response is seemingly, no. No. I will not be the God of grace in this instance. I will not be the God of grace in this instance. Jesus, I... I'm saying no to you, David. I am saying no. I will not. I will not relent. I will not pour out my grace in this situation. And it's, it's then that I think that the suspicions come. They come into my heart. I'm sure they, get, they come into yours. What do we do with a God who, who says no to saving the, the life of a child? Or even worse, like how, how, what do we do with a God who would use this child of the king to, to discipline his father? It seems so strange to us. And we wonder, do I like interacting with this God? Do I want this God to be my father? Or in all of this, am I just seeing this ugly picture of God? A picture of God that I, I don't want anything to do with. I, I struggle with being in relationship to a God who works in this way. And that's where I, I want us to see Jesus in this passage. I want to see Jesus in this passage that we might see why God said no. Why did God say no? I think God said no so he might say yes in Jesus' life. God said no here so that he might, to the, to the grace that David thinks he wants, so that he might say yes to the grace that, that the world needs. So how does this get us to Jesus? Uh, there are themes throughout the, the whole Bible that talk about the, the firstborn. The firstborn son. And the firstborn son is this, this special category in the redemption of humanity in the history of the Old Testament and here is, here is one more, firstborn son, the firstborn son of David and Bathsheba. And when you hear that and you see that, and you see that the firstborn has died, there should be, there should be other categories blowing up in your mind when you're thinking about Scripture. 
All right, maybe you start thinking about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, going up to Mount Moriah, and that the firstborn would be called to die, and at the last minute, there's a sacrifice that comes to save him. That, that death was coming upon the firstborn, and a sacrifice came. All right, maybe you're thinking of the Exodus and the Passover, that the sins of the firstborn were upon, of, of Egypt were upon, upon the firstborns. It wasn't against all of Egypt that the judgment of God came upon the firstborn sons. And it was against everyone except those that were redeemed by a sacrifice. Now, it starts to get kind of obscure, but there are references to the fact that after that point, every firstborn in Israel, every firstborn son, had to be bought back because he belonged to the Lord and because there was, a, there was a price on his head. That he was bearing the sins of the previous generations. And that the firstborn animals had to be cleansed and had to be redeemed. That the firstborn clean animals were supposed to be sacrificed. That the, that the sin, that sin was upon them. And we start to see this running theme and realize all right, there's a picture here for us. And we can't just say this is just one way that God decided to, to throw out a, a discipline against David. No, this is a, a very specific one. That it was a picture of what was required to take away David's sin. That it wasn't enough just that David would repent. He needs to know how, how his sin was taken away. And why he didn't have to die, he didn't have to die because a firstborn son would die in his place. The firstborn son would die in his place. That this son pointed forward to the ultimate son, Jesus Christ. The firstborn son of God. Who would die for us, who would die in our place that we might be cleansed from sin, that sin might be removed from us, that the death that we deserve for our sin might be removed. And that's where we ask, okay, did God say no? Did he say no? No grace for you, David. No grace for your son. No, he said grace in Jesus Christ for you and your son and for all people. And the only reason you can say, I... He's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go to him. Is because Jesus Christ came to us and died and went to the Father, and now we go with Jesus to the Father that we might have resurrection life. That's what this story is about. This is not just this vague discipline. This is that he might understand his sin in light of the cross, that David would see the horrors of his sin that it required the death of God himself to wash him clean. Is this a picture of grace? Yes. When he cried out and said, maybe God will be gracious, was God gracious? Yes. He was gracious in Jesus Christ. He said no in the moment. He said yes in Jesus Christ for all eternity, for all of us that as we cry out to God in the midst of suffering and in our sin, we might be forgiven. And I think that, that alone, I think, would be a beautiful picture. 
and we'd be content with it. But what, is, what does God do? God gives us even more grace. And he takes this, this picture of death, and then he be, turns it into a picture of life. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, which means the beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. All right, what is this now? If we saw a picture of the death of Jesus, this is now a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That in the story, in the Old Testament, kind of, there's the death of the son, and then there's the, in a sense, in an Old Testament sense, and this is hard for us to grasp, this is the resurrection of his son. This is the redemptive of the death of his son, the redemption of that son. And that the son of, of cursing was then turned into this, this son of blessing. Now that should be astounding to us because most of us think that if, if David and Bathsheba started in sin, they should be cursed forever. They should be cursed forever, and their whole household should be miserable. They should do nothing but fight. All of their kids should be terrible, um, and that God should totally remove all of his favor from them. Because look at what they've done. Look at the foundation of that marriage. Uh, how could it possibly be redeemed? What, what could God do with it? And what does God do with it? He, he uses that wife. And that relationship and the son of their marriage that started on horrible ground. And yet he makes Solomon the, the chosen one. The one who would fulfill the promises that we saw two weeks ago. That Solomon would become the, the king of peace who would bring peace to the world. We saw that he would become the, the one who builds the temple. The one who would rebuild the, David's throne. He is the promised one. And he is ultimately part of the line of Jesus Christ. In, the, in Matthew, we see that uh, a reminder of this, this amazing act of grace saying, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That there could be this kind of like ugly blight on Jesus' resume, but instead God, God takes that and uses it as a, as a reminder of the redemption that's found in, in forgiveness, in real restoration. And so we have this picture of resurrection alongside this picture of death, this picture of, of judgment and this picture of grace. And together we see Jesus Christ through death and resurrection. die with Jesus Christ, we die in Jesus Christ, and we are resurrected in him. He goes to the eternal throne, to the throne of David, and we rule with him for all eternity. Was God gracious to David? Yes. Did God say no? He said no, so he might say yes in Jesus Christ, so that nothing but Jesus might be the purpose of all of these things that God might show himself to be gracious in Jesus Christ. 
All right, so what do I say to all this? What do we, what do, we do with it? Uh, first, the discipline of the Lord does not last forever. And some of you, I really do think, uh, believe that you are cursed by God. And that because uh, things started in sin, that, that marriages, relationship with children, your, your, li- your relationship with God, because they, they had sin in them from the beginning, or at some point, they, they have become just this whole curse. That your life is cursed, that God's relationship with you is one of cursing. Uh, if David can re- redeem the, the marriage between David and Bathsheba, he, he can have an abundance of grace in your life. And he could turn the things that deserve to be cursed into things that are actually used for his redemption and his glory. Please look in your lives for the work of God's grace, not for the curse. Not expecting nothing but discipline. If you are suffering, call out to God. Call out to him. Interact with him. Ask him to be the God of grace as that we know he is in Jesus Christ. And then finally, look to Jesus Christ himself. God is gracious in Jesus. He is pouring out his grace in Jesus. He is loving us in Jesus. He is forgiving us in Jesus. Even in our suffering, he's working us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the God we know even when we are in the midst of discipline and suffering. That's the the beauty of our God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Any questions? Uh, they were actually bought back, bought bought from. They're given a, a monetary payment to the priests. Yeah, and it was actually we were actually told that the existence of the Levites partially was so that all of those firstborn sons didn't have to go into the priesthood. Yeah, so it, it's both of those together. Yeah. Any other questions? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he shows up in the midst of the darkest and most difficult uh, sufferings and disciplines and circumstances. Father, we ask that you might show us the, the real weight of our sin. That our sins did not just require repentance or sorrow. Our sins required the, the sacrifice of your son. And yet, Father, you still listen to us. You still regard us. You are still the God of grace to us, even, even when we, we utterly despise you. Father, would you help us to see the grace of, of what you've done in Jesus? Father, would it, would it move us 
as we are in the midst of suffering, that we would run after you and pursue you and, and call out to you. Father, would you give us uh, eyes to see the, the beauty of who you are? Would we really trust you? Would we delight in worshiping you for all that you've done? Father, give us eyes to see nothing but Jesus and the grace that is in him. In Jesus' name.